Well, uh, as I was praying, maybe some of you were thinking, uh, hey, he is not from around here. Uh, and, and that is clearly evident. Uh, my name is Ray Levy. I am the campus pastor at our LifePoint Brussels campus. Now, I'm not Belgian, uh, and there's a, a bit of a story uh, that brought me to, to Brussels, um, but I'm standing before you today to, to preach to you, Joshua 8, and uh, I'm really honored to be here. Uh, there's only one campus, actually, that I'm preaching at, and I'm preaching at Stewart's Creek, and so it's, it's such a wonderful honor to be able to be before you, to, to speak to you, to speak the word to you, uh, and I hope that uh, as we hear the word together, that that will be something that we will uh, relish and enjoy. Uh, well, look, uh, <clears throat> I was trying to think of an illustration to open up this sermon, and I, you know, I thought, well, what better way to ingratiate myself to uh, lovely American people to uh, talk about some American sports. Okay. So, uh, Michael Jordan, yes, I know Michael Jordan. Uh, he is one of the most famous sportsmen ever. In fact, he is probably the greatest basketballer ever to play the game. And I'm sorry if you're a LeBron fan, okay, but he is the GOAT. Uh, look, it's easy to forget, though, that. I mean, he mustn't have always been great. There must have been a time when even he was kind of learning the ropes and trying to figure things out. Uh, and the truth is, is that for all of us, we all have to start somewhere. None of us start great at what we do. We always have to start somewhere. Uh, and in fact, uh, with Michael Jordan, what's interesting is that he failed to make his high school basketball team, greatest player of all time and he failed to make his high school basketball team. He was deemed too short by the coach, uh, but then he grew seven inches in high school. Uh, he attended North Carolina College, and uh, he won the national championship uh, as a freshman, actually. And then three years later, he was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. And I don't know if you noticed, but he was not the number one pick. He was the number three. Uh, so, you know... I guess it's not very glamorous to be the first and second pick of that draft, but uh, someone's got to be the first or second. Uh, anyway, um, Jordan led the Bulls to six NBA championships. He earned the NBA's MVP award five times with five regular season MVPs and three all-star MVPs, and he is one of the most decorated and uh, just revered athletes of all time. Not to mention that he is probably the richest athlete alive today uh, with his, his fortune. But he has a great quote, fantastic quote, uh, that you've probably seen on Instagram or Facebook or something like that. Uh, but uh, it's a fantastic book about failure and success. I'm sure you've heard it, but he says this. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over in my life, and that is why I succeed. See, I think that this is a great lesson because, quite simply, failure is part of life. 
And I think as Christians, we all really want to be obedient to God. We've all failed at some point. We've all failed in our obedience at some point. But as we'll see in Joshua 8, it doesn't have to be the end of our hope. Failure doesn't have to be fatal depending on how we respond. Last week, we we learned about Achan and how his disobedience had far-reaching consequences, not just for him, but for his family and for, quite frankly, all of Israel. We learned that sin in the camp cannot be tolerated because it always has far-reaching consequences. And it doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone in the world. Consequently, today, we're going to learn that God's faithfulness is greater than our failures. We're gonna learn that God's faithfulness is greater than our failures, that God's grace is greater than our sin, that God's blessing is is greater than we can imagine, and that obeying God's word is how we fight God's war. So the story so far is that after God leveled Jericho, the gate to the promised land was essentially swung right open. The next city of, uh, on Israel's like itinerary was a tiny city called Ai, which was about 12,000 people. And it was just like a dozen miles from Jericho. But just after conquering Jericho, which was a populous, walled, fortified city, these guys are thinking, hey, AI, this must be, it's gonna be easy. God had been with the Israelites so far and Joshua thought, well, I'll just send a few men to get the job and take the city of AI. But as we've read before, they got routed, leaving Israel embarrassed and giving their enemies hope. Not only that, but Joshua's confidence was rock bottom here. He just lost a battle that was supposed to be easy. God's people had just entered the promised land and already there's some huge sin issue that had crept in and they had to judge Achan and his family. It seemed like at the first sign of adversity, things were gonna take a bad turn. You know, they just endured 40 years in the desert. Surely they were thinking, is this gonna be another 40? God promised to give Joshua the land though. But failure has a funny way of causing us to question God's faithfulness, doesn't it? How often do we, we turn and think that at the first sign of adversity, that this is the withdrawing of God's favor? but we know that that doesn't hold any water, does it? And that's not true here either. So Joshua, Joshua set an ambush. He sent 30,000 men of valor to hide west of Ai. And then he led another group to set up camp in plain sight just north of Ai too. And then he placed 5,000 men between Ai and Bethel, which was a, a city just nearby, to cut off any reinforcements. When Ai saw Joshua and his men, they, they must have thought, look, 
We've already defeated these guys. We routed them last time. Look, this is going to be easy, okay? We've taken them down once. Let's just finish the job once and for all. So Joshua begins to run. And it looks like the Israelites are defeated. But as we know, it was a diversion. And Ai, the city of Ai, took the bait. And as they're chasing Joshua, the men of valor ran into the city and burnt it to the ground. The plan worked to perfection. And we later read that Joshua killed the king and he hung his body on a tree to show what happens when you oppose God's people. Now, this might be tempting to think, okay, well, they just hung him on a tree. Like that just seemed to be the thing you do uh, when you conquer a city. But it's important to note here that it's not just happenstance. It wasn't just you know, the easiest way for them to judge this king who was wicked um, in a meaning, meaningless and callous way. No, what we see here is a kind of foreshadowing. See, the king of Ai, he deserved death and judgment for his wickedness. There's no doubt about that. And we also see here, though, that it's pointing to Jesus. See, Jesus bore the curse for our sins as he hung on the tree, as he hung on the cross. And that conquered the curse for us. And my friends, if Christ was cursed for you, well, you cannot be cursed again. You see, folks, this is an incredible story that reminds us that God's faithfulness is greater than our failures. In what might have seemed like the first in a slippery slope of defeats as his people fail and let him down, God remains true to his people and he delivers them. God knows we'll fail. God knows that we'll fail. He'll know that we struggle. God understands us though. Indeed, in Jesus, he became God as man for us. He empathizes with our every weakness, with our every temptation, with our every struggle. He is understands that because he has endured that. And he knew that we would fear, feel, fear, uh, feel fear too. And he knew that Joshua would feel that way as well. Look again with me at the first part of Joshua 8. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Did you know that in the book of Joshua, God says, do not fear or do not be afraid 39 times. So as Joshua felt encouraged, God says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. You see, we let God down, but he'll never let us down. We break our promises, but he'll never break his promises. God says, look at me. Don't fear, keep going. 
You know, Robert Machine, a Scottish pastor, once said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at God. See, he understood that it all rests on God. Our salvation is secure. He knows that we'll let him down, but he'll never let us down. And the success of Joshua and the Israelites in the promised land, look, it never rested on Joshua's ability to lead. It didn't rest on the ability of the Israelite generals to strategize and to figure out the best way of defeating these cities. No, it rests on God's strength and ability. His promises. All the Israelites were called to do was to be obedient. That's why in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our frustrations, in the midst of our failures, in the, when we lack confidence, we can have confidence. Our success and failure in this world is, it's never predicated on the idea that we are able enough or, or good enough or successful enough. It isn't. Here we see that Joshua's and our failures are taken on completely and totally by the strength of God's faithfulness. His promises are sure and true, and his promises are completely and totally fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. So, Christian, that weight that you feel has been taken. It has been taken from you. It is not yours to bear. The failures that you carry with you are not yours to bear. Believer, the weight of your burdens and failures are laid completely and totally at the feet of the cross where Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ took your sin and shame. He bore the weight of sin and the weight of the world. Do as Joshua did. Hold on to Christ in the midst of your storm. Know that his faithfulness is greater than your failures. Christ is your sure and steady anchor. This importantly leads us to our very next point that God's grace is greater than our sin. So just rewinding back a little bit. This is where we are, okay? Joshua and the Israelites are on a bit of a roll, okay? They've, they've just defeated Jericho. They've just defeated Ai. They're feeling pretty bold and confident, okay? And their enemies are kind of like melting and running before them. You know, in terms of human wisdom, we would imagine that this is probably not a good time to, to press pause on this kind of ancient Palestinian blitzkrieg, uh, but defying what seems like human wisdom, Joshua again hits pause and then leads Israel 20 miles north to Mount Ebal to renew the covenant again by doing what Moses told them back in Deuteronomy 27. So let's look at Deuteronomy 27 verses four and five. It says, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal. 
and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall wield no iron tool on them. So <laughs> just a, a little bit of a quick sidebar here. Um, it seems like Joshua basically marched his whole people about 20 miles to go to a worship service. That's a lot of commitment. You know, I was just kind of reflecting with uh, uh, Jordan Raven before, um, and uh, I, I'm so ignorant of a lot of things around here. Obviously, it's like my second day. Uh, but uh, one of the things was, I was like, oh, can we just walk up? To, I said, said to him, can, surely we can just walk up to church. And he's like, we, don't, we drive here. We're not gonna, it's pretty far. You don't walk to church. But these guys here, these guys walked 20 miles. Look, I know what it can be like, right? You know, I know it can be hard for us to get up and drive sometimes when it's just 10 minutes away. Now, I've got a three-year-old, a fighting three-year-old, and uh, sometimes it seems like getting him ready, just getting like his jacket on, getting his shoes and socks on is just like the ultimate battle. It's like, oh my gosh, please just put your jacket on. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I just want to give up, you know? I just want to give up. Uh, but then uh, my, my wife reminds me that uh, I am the pastor and I, I do need to preach that day. So, uh, you know, but these guys, right? These guys, they, they, they walk 20 miles to worship. And not only 20 miles, but 20 miles in the midst of a war. You know, we are so blessed to be able to join together in the covenant community of God. Am I able to do this without fear of persecution in the West. You see, we are literally the people of God joining together in the worship of the creator of the heavens and earth. Do you realize that? Do you realize that today? You know, you and I, we're from different cultures, we're from different nations, perhaps different perspectives. I speak a little bit funny, uh, but we are more alike. Do you realize this? You and I are more alike than your next door neighbor who does not know Christ. You and I are more alike than your next door neighbor who does not know Christ as Lord. You know, the covenant community, church, is unique. There is literally no other place on earth like it. There is no other place like it. There is no other place that can replicate it. And I think sometimes if we perhaps grasped that a little bit more clearly, we would be getting here maybe a little bit more early. You know, often we can feel just so busy, but Joshua saw that the most important thing here was not our priorities. It wasn't our human strategizing or planning or organization or wisdom. No, it was God's. It was God's that was. So they did what God commanded them to do. 
they stopped to worship. They stopped to worship. So let's continue in Deuteronomy from verse 12. It says, when you have crossed over to Jordan, there, uh, yeah, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Now, this is kind of interesting, right? So like the tribes, the tribes of Israel were split in two. Okay, one on Mount Ebal on one side, then one on Mount Gerizim on, other time, uh, on the other side. One was representing covenant curses, and the other was representing covenant blessing. And then we had like a valley, okay, a valley between the mountains, which provides a, a natural amphitheater where the people on one mountain could hear the people on the other side of the mountain. I just want to think about it. I think how amazing that gathering would have been. It would have been like the greatest worship event you've ever been to. It would have been a great multitude that were descended on the two sides of the valley. And it was to celebrate and remember what God had done to make the people at peace with him and with each other. It was an opportunity to renew the covenant promises that they had made in the desert with each other again. The Ark of the Covenant sat in the valley, right in the middle, between the two mountains, as Joshua offered sacrifices and then read the law that God uh, gave Moses. And as each curse and blessing was read, the people responded by saying, amen. This was an awesome worship experience. But it was more than just that. You see, this pointed to Jesus. You see, God knew that they really meant to keep their covenant promises. God wanted these Israelites to keep their hearts pointed to him. But he knew that they would soon fall and fail under the covenant curses that ultimately they just proclaimed upon themselves. So here we see that the Israelites performed sacrifices to make peace with God and each other, but this could only be temporary. So sins would always require them to make further sacrifices as they sin again and again and again. And the imperfect nature of the animal sacrifices meant that the nature of their sins were not fully atoned for. So ultimately, we see that God would offer a sacrifice of his son, who'd make those who consume him to be at peace with God and with each other. And guys, this would be the perfect and better sacrifice. It'd be one without end, one without a mediator, one that would be sufficient for all. You see, it is God and God alone who saves his people. We see that clearly in Joshua here, but we see it ultimately in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is God, it is God who operates on our behalf. It is God who comes to us to bring us to him. It is not the other way around. Joshua and the Israelite community they knew at this moment that they were renewing their covenant promises. But church, do 
you realize that we get to do that each and every week here as we gather together? That each week as we join together, we are renewing the covenant promises that God made to us through Christ Jesus? That's why we should not neglect giving up together, as the writer of Hebrews says. See, we are blessed in the scope of eternity that we can see things in this story from the perspective of Jesus Christ. We know that he went to the cross. We know his death and resurrection. So we get to see this more clearly than the Israelites ever could. That the ultimate fulfillment and solution to God's plan for our sin is that we get him. We get Christ. He is the plan for us. He is the great redeemer. He is the one that brings us to him. And that means that his grace covers all of our failure and all of our sin. So we see clearly here that God's grace, God's grace is greater than our sin. But also that God's blessing is greater than we can imagine. So we're just gonna rewind just a little bit back into chapter seven. And I want you to think back to how God brought down the walls of Jericho. Now remember that he told Israel not to take any of the loot other than the gold and silver, which was for the treasury of the Lord. But we saw that Achan was impatient. He was greedy. He questioned God's goodness. He was tempted to say, take something that he was explicitly instructed not to take. Okay, don't take the loot. That's what he took. See, Achan couldn't imagine anything better than this, than the gold bar that lay in front of him. So he did what God told him not to do. And he brought a curse on the whole nation. But look here in chapter eight, verse two. It says, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. When the Israelites took Ai, God told them to keep and enjoy the loot from the city. God's blessing here was just around the corner. If, if Achan had just been patient, he would have seen God's blessing in this. If he just was patient and trusted God. But he tried to make it happen. You know, force the situation rather than, you know, rather than trusting God. You know, we might look at Achan and we might think, you know, look, I'm not gonna make the same mistakes as him, right? Not in ancient Palestine. It's not gonna happen. But how often do we really fall into these kind of same traps? Now take, for example, dating, uh, dating a non-believer. You know, there's unbelief there about God's ability to remain faithful to his children. And ultimately, that his plan is better than your plan. You know, sure, it, it kind of starts thinking that, 
You know, you start out thinking, uh, look, I'm going to find a guy or a girl, you know, someone at church that you know, ticks all the boxes. Uh, but then when in the waiting, it just kind of doesn't start happening, it, we start to look elsewhere. We start to kind of force the issue a bit. Well, if it's not going to happen, well, then I, I really need to make it happen, right? But God's commands are clear. And his plan for your life and flourishing are clear. He says, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. He knows that the consequence of not doing this will result in your pain and suffering, in our pain and suffering. If what is greatest, what is most central in your life is Christ and your spouse doesn't share that, then that's going to create great and deep hurts because you are not aligned as a couple to God. Or to to bring another example here, uh, finances too can be an area that we struggle with. Now, look, I promise you, RC didn't tell me to say anything about this or anything. I just thought that this is a really great example. And so I kind of, uh, wrote this bit, but um, look, uh, when we, we often think about this when it comes to tithing, that we're simply, simply giving away our money, okay? That there's nothing else to it. We just give away our money. I mean, I can tithe 10% of my money, but what does that get me? You know? We think that our money goes nowhere and it does Nothing. But that thinking is ultimately backwards. I mean, when we stop for a moment and really think about it, it just doesn't make sense. You see, when we give to God and when we tithe, we aren't giving our money away. No, we are making an investment. I really want you to think about this here for a little bit because for me, this caught me out for so long. Uh, But when you tithe and make offerings to church, you are making an investment. God isn't asking you to give your money away. He's not saying that. He's asking you to invest in his kingdom. You see the difference? He's not asking you to give something up. He's asking you to invest more deeply in your heavenly home. And the rewards that it reaps in this creation are far-reaching too. Stuart's Creek, I stand before you today as evidence of your generosity and investment in the church and because you gave to the nations. You know, let me tell you, uh, my story is one that I thought would be a lot more average (laughs) than what it is, but God worked through my life in ways that I still haven't quite comprehended and, and fully have worked out. You know, you're probably asking some really great questions like, how is it that a 30-year-old something Australian from Sydney is standing before us today preaching at Stewart's Creek campus in his 
kind of weird voice and uh, weird accent. And w- what is he doing here? Well, as with all things, it begins with God. See, God brought me to him when I was 14. I went to a a local church, not so dissimilar to this, and I started attending a student group in Sydney. God laid it on my heart uh, to start serving in worship, and then through serving in worship, I met my wife, Catherine, who was playing, playing and singing before, Uh, and we got married. Then God brought us to London to teach English. And then later he put it on our hearts to move to Brussels. In his providence, God moved us to a house that was two minutes away from the LifePoint Brussels campus. And I was often late, okay, so I've I've learned from my ways. In his providence, God provided a serving opportunity in worship really early on. I remember walking in, it was almost like the first day uh, that we we got there and we we spoke to the worship uh, pastor at the time and we noticed that no one was playing the keyboard. And uh, he said, look, we bought one, we don't have anyone to play, we're just praying and hoping that someone will come. And then sure enough, Catherine started playing on that and I started playing on guitar. God provided things for us. In his providence, God raised godly leaders around me and around us. He he raised leaders like Kyle Goen, who was my first pastor there. He raised leaders like uh, Jordan Rabin, who I toiled and labored alongside, especially in the, the height of the COVID pandemic. These people intentionally and lovingly pastored and stewarded not only me, but God's people. You know, it was years later that Pat and Peyton asked me to lead at LifePoint Brussels. But it was the investment, it was the care, it was the, the time, the energy that these people poured into me that meant that I could and should heed the call to ministry. I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd be a pastor in Brussels, Belgium. If you asked me when I was 14 and became a Christian where Brussels, Belgium was, I would be like, I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere north of France, I don't know. And I certainly wouldn't have imagined at that point that I'd be part of this family, part of this church from middle Tennessee. Folks, let me be clear. God builds his church that he uses his people to bring him glory. See, your investment then has paid earthly dividends. That means in Brussels, we have a strong and thriving church now. We have about 150 people that regularly attend from all over the world. I mean, we, we tried to count it the other day, but I think we had something like over 30 languages that are spoken within our church. I think it's something more than 40 or 50 nationalities that we have represented also. We have a community that is so unlike anything in the city that is 0.7% evangelical. Folks, if you mention the name Jesus to a person on the street, 
they would not know that name. But Stewart's Creek, you are laying up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Immense rewards and treasures. Your crowns will be great for the faithfulness you have shown in stewarding what God has given you. You heeded the call and you went to the nations. In short, you went and you lived sent and you've given him the glory that he so rightfully deserves. Church, you are a body of believers that is unlike any other church that I've known. I've only been here two days, but that is certainly true. And I don't mean this in a sense to, to flatter you or to you know, pump your tires or anything like that. I mean that in the sense that there are so few churches in the world like you. Churches that so generously and faithfully give and give to a church that perhaps you've never met before, to partner in ministry that you, you trust the Lord in, is beyond our human comprehension that I can stand before you and call you my brothers and sisters in Christ. See, it is your giving, it's your, your, your generosity that is sustaining, growing, and ultimately, as really we're close to planting a French-speaking congregation at our church, uh, multiplying. So as the pastor of LifePoint Brussels, I wanna thank you. It's such a privilege and honor to be, stand, to be able to stand before you and to say thank you. But I also wanna encourage you Don't grow complacent. Don't forget the hope that you have. Continue to heap up your crowns in heaven and set your eyes on your heavenly home that is to come. Do so just as Joshua and the Israelites did so here and as Achan should have too. But remember that God's blessing. It is God's blessing. It is greater than anything we can imagine. And as we play things out here, I wanna look at one final point today. And I think this is really our bottom line and our takeaway for today. And that's that obeying God's word is how we fight God's war. See, it's worth stating here that uh, it wasn't uh, Israel's or Joshua's uh, wisdom or military might or power that led to their success. No, it was their obedience, their covenant obedience that led to that. See, Jericho was incredibly well fortified. It was famously so. There was absolutely no way that Israel could have got across those walls I mean, the Canaanite warriors, they were fierce. They were well-trained. They were battle-tested. And look, the Israelites, on the other hand, they've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Uh, they probably like, have never done any battle uh, in the last 40 years either. You know, there is just absolutely no way that a, a group of nomadic farmers beat seasoned warriors with a bunch of pitchforks and some river rocks. Because the battle isn't physical. 
It's not physical, it's spiritual. The battle is spiritual. And see, this wasn't Israel's battle, it was God's battle. So the, the secret to victory isn't strategy, it's obedience. The most important book here is not Sun Tzu's Art of War, no, it's the Word of God, right? See, today all around the world, we Christians are in a fierce cultural battle. We're holding on to the principles of God's word, but the world is turning away from God to do what is right in their own eyes. See, God is the creator of the heavens and earth, but he is also the creator of each and every human being. We are the imago Dei, made an image of God. Indeed, he conceived us in his mind before the world began. Now, folks, people say that life begins at conception, but look, in reality, it begins at the beginning of eternity when God thought of you and called you by name. Yet, we've gone our own way and done our own thing, and in many places in the world and in Europe, we made abortion legal. We've denied what has been plain to man and did what was right in our own eyes. But it's not just limited to abortion. I mean, we're seeing laws for euthanasia becoming more liberalized all around the world. And that is none more true than in my home of Brussels, Belgium. Uh, Here are some very, very sobering statistics uh, about euthanasia in Belgium. Belgium is a country of less than 12 million. It's 11.5 million. But in 2022 alone, over 5,000 people were euthanized. Those numbers have grown enormously year on year. It's about like a 100% jump each year. And of those numbers, around 30% of the people were younger than age 60. And in fact, one of the most shocking things is that euthanasia is legal for any individual of any age. There is no limit to how young one may be. And the reasons for euthanasia are not just limited to those with physical suffering. Some of the most common reasons for euthanasia are dementia, psychiatric disorders, and mood disorders. At least 10% alone is for disorders such as depression or suicidal thoughts. I mean, let's just pause for a minute there. We're talking about assisted taking of life, yet one of the reasons that you can be eligible for that is because you have a suicidal thought. It feels like the depravity of man knows no bounds. But this isn't the only thing that's changing in our world. Now, God's word says that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, but increasingly, same-sex marriage has been made almost legal in, I think, every European country and many states here in the States. It goes to show also how far we've gone when recently Disney promised to be committed to increasing the percentage of LGBTQI voices in their media. Uh, The upcoming release of Lightyear features a groundbreaking same-sex kiss 
for the first time in a Pixar film. As people who abide by God's word, we have to be exercising discernment. Look, can we truly be saying that exposing our kids to this is wise or helpful when we know that they can't process the the morality of seeing men and men or women and women or uh, men dressed as women? Their and our minds are being shaped to believe that sin is normative. And this is going to continue as we continue to consume the culture that we're exposed to. But church, this isn't about fighting Disney. Now let's be honest here, Disney is such a huge, massive conglomerate that boycotting Disney is not going to have a lot of effect on their decisions. But we must fight for our family. See, it's hard to see that we're in a fierce cultural battle for the soul. It isn't hard to see, sorry, that we're in a fierce cultural battle for the souls of our kids. But the battle, the battle isn't ours. It belongs to the Lord. We need to fight, but we must remember our fight isn't physical, it's spiritual. You know, Paul speaks of these battles in the book of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, our battle is not a physical one. It's not a political one. No, it's a spiritual one. And to be prepared for the fight, we need to equip ourselves with the right armor and weaponry. And the weapon for the fight is the Word of God. So as I invite the band to come on back up, I'd like to leave us with a bit of application today. Parents, we are being challenged here today. How are we preparing our children for the issues of the world. Look, children are looking for answers to hard questions about our world. And they're not just looking for information either. They're looking for and need emotional reassurance and moral grounding. So how are we seizing this opportunity to teach our children about what Scripture says about these issues? But it's not just parents here today, but all of us, we all have an incredible opportunity to dignify these conversations that we're having not just about the issues I mentioned before, but about issues like the war in Ukraine. We have the opportunity to say, Scripture guides us in how we morally evaluate everything, from something as big as a war to something as trivial as a transaction in a grocery store. Scripture guides us in all things. And, you know, at LifePoint, at LifePoint Brussels, we've been uh, encouraging our people to read the Word as we read the New Testament plan together. And I see that you guys are doing that too, and I'm so encouraged that you're doing that. But you also saw before that we've got the Holy Week devotional. Take advantage of that. Use those resources. Help Scripture inform you. Help it direct your heart. 
See, reading the word regularly with our spouses, our children, our friends, our colleagues, our brothers and sisters in Christ is the best way to engage with the issues and worries of our world. And the way we tackle those concerns is by wrestling with what God says about his world in his word. So are you engaging and reading his word? Now, I don't want you to to feel like, uh, with the Bible reading plan at least, I don't want you to feel like it's too far gone or like it's too late, I've fallen behind or I didn't start before, I can't do it. Look, yes, the best time would have been to start at the beginning of the year, but you know the next best time? Right now. Because church, when it ultimately comes down to it, we will be either consumed by the world or consumed by his word. We're fighting with the same weapons that Paul, Luther, Calvin, Bonhoeffer fought with. There is nothing new under the sun. Folks, obedience to God's word is how we fight God's war. But also church, if you want to receive the promises that we spoke of today. Christ's offer for you is open. He's calling you here today. I prayed for you guys here today. See, he's calling you. If you don't know him, the things that he promised Joshua and the Israelites, the things that we ultimately see fulfilled in Christ Jesus, they are for you. He's asking you to proclaim Him as Lord and Savior, to put Him in the preeminent place that He deserves to be put in. Church, if you don't know Christ, you can respond to Him today. You can respond to Him right now. I know that uh, often we encourage you to fill in a connect card or to speak one, to one of your pastors, to RC or to Jordan. And if you don't know him today, why don't you speak to them? It's never too late to receive the full grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. It is a gift that is free and for you. Church, uh, from LifePoint Brussels, it is such a privilege to speak to you, to get to know some of you. But let me finally encourage you with one thing. Church, read the Word. Read it. Memorize it. Write the Scripture on your hearts. Carry it with you as you fight these battles in the world that are going to only get harder. Our church needs you. You are our brothers and sisters that we dearly, dearly love and appreciate. And while you might not know some of our names and I might not know some of your names, we are united in Christ. I hope to meet many of you as we spend a couple more days here in the US. I'm obviously going off to the uh, receiving gathering in a moment. Uh, But one thing I am sure of is that I will be able to worship Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty forever and ever, arms in arms, as we worship with the Lord in the new creation. Church, 
Live and breathe the Word. Make it how you fight the battles that God has given you and rejoice in His victory. Church, I love you. I pray for you often. It's a privilege to speak to you today. Church, let's pray and uh, let's worship uh, as we sing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for Lord, your goodness and kindness, Lord, uh, that you brought my family here, that we're able to speak uh, to this church, this wonderful church, Stewart's Creek. What a blessing it is to be able to speak to them today and to worship alongside them. What a privilege it is to sing songs that praise your name and glorify you. Lord, it's it's so overwhelming as to what you do in your church, what you do in your people. You unite us together in your body and blood. It's unlike anything else in all of creation. Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you for how you created it and made it, that you united us through him that died for us on the cross. Lord, I pray for those that are believers here today. Lord, I pray that they know your word. Lord, that they will find it sweeter than honey, that they will go to it day after day after day and it will fill and just pour out of them. Lord, I know it already does. But Lord, I pray that that never ceases. So Lord, I pray for these people that know you, that they continue to raise up your word, to hold it as first and foremost in their lives. Keep it at the center of their lives, the center of their homes. Raise their children in the way of the Lord through your word. But Lord, I also pray for those that don't know you here today. Lord, I pray that they will know you, that you will enter their hearts, that you will transform them to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that someone in this room today that has never committed to you. Lord, I pray that they came to know you. Lord, I pray that they follow up with that, that they connect with someone here. Lord, I thank you that I can speak to these people, that I can pray with these people. What a blessing it has been. Lord, I love them. I care for them. I wish that they will just continue to grow in your love. Lord, I just pray all of this in your glorious amazing and gracious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Stills Creek, let's continue in worship.